0: Lord, we love you. We come before you tonight grateful that we have the opportunity to gather and to worship you freely. Lord, we're, we're grateful that you know what we need before we even ask it. And Lord, you provide everything that we need. Lord, many of us are coming from different situations in life today. Some of us are coming here rejoicing with hearts full of your joy others of us, Lord, come crying out in desperation for you. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just overwhelm each one of us, help us to know you and see you in new ways tonight, Lord. I pray that the person who is most desperate for your touch, Lord, you would touch them at their point of need. Lord, you alone are worthy of our praise and glory and adoration I pray, Lord, that you would move in this place in new ways, help us to see you, and to hear clearly what you have for us tonight, Lord. Be with Pastor Chris as he brings us your word. Hide him behind your cross, and may we know you through the words of his mouth. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts combined be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. We love you, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.
1: I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Second uh, Samuel chapter 11, if you would. And I've got friends, if you do not have a Bible, I do have friends, friends that will bring you some Bibles. So just raise your hand and they would be glad to lend you a Bible. Uh, I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep this. If you just need it for the service, you can just borrow it for the evening and then leave it on your chair if you would. This is our gift to you, but the word of the Lord for us tonight comes out of Second Samuel chapter 11. This is a rough passage. I will tell you right from the front. So I invite you to stand as we seek to hear good news from this very difficult passage for us this evening. So hear the word of the Lord from Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and all the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one evening, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In some translations, that is actually a question. Isn't her name Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. (laughs) She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, "'What is the matter? Why didn't you go home late last night after being away for so long?' And Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So we are in this series that we're calling Tales for Jewish Children and the rest of us and uh, this is our last week in it, and we're ending on the hardest one. So uh, just so you know, recently I've been binge-listening binge to the 30 for 30 podcast that's been put out by ESPN. Now, it, 30 for 30 is this series of short stories, and with these stories, I'm like a, I'm like a bug to a light. I'm like a tractor beam for me. It pulls me in, and I'm especially drawn into the stories that that are told where um, the people in these stories experience real tragedy that usually comes to them because of their great successes. Former Indiana basketball coach Bob Knight, there's a picture of him, he had a high graduation rate among his student-athletes, but at the same time, he abused his players. Uh, a famous, famous Indian yogi, Bikram, healed bodies with yoga, but he destroyed lives because of his need to be in control of his employees and his followers, and he was in control of them in every way, financially, emotionally, and even sexually. One of my favorite athletes of all time, or at least was, a cyclist Lance Armstrong Raised millions and millions and millions of dollars for cancer research, and he gave hope to so many survivors, and and he gave hope to family members, including myself. I read his book when my father-in-law was sick with cancer, but he sued everyone and anyone. He destroyed businesses. He destroyed reputations and lives in order to maintain this false image that he won his races clean. And in each one of these stories, there's a common theme. Each one, no, each one maintained that no matter how bad their behavior was, it was justified because of the good that each had done. And you know that it's not only high-profile athletes that take the center stage of corruption and moral collapse. It's kings and politicians and the systems that they perpetuate. In 1170, King Henry II of England sought to enhance his own authority over the church. And when he dealt with papal resistance, he, would, he exasperately proclaimed, will no one rid me of this meddles- meddlesome priest? This has become a famous line. This is an utterance attributed to Thomas Beck, who was the archbishop of Canterbury, who had excommunicated a number of bishops that supported the corrupt decisions of the king. And while it wasn't a direct command when he said these words, the inference was made and four knights showed up to assassinate the archbishop. In 2017, former FBI director James Comey used this exact phrase, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? People in power positions are a mixed bag. Thomas Jefferson gave birth to a nation of freedom while at the same time he perpetuated a system of slavery. JFK was a brilliant visionary leader while at the same time he was a womanizer. Richard Nixon was a brilliant strategist while at the same time he was consumed with paranoia. We could talk about LBJ, we could talk about Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, or Jed Bartlett from the West Wing. It doesn't matter. Many, many, many have been surrounded in controversy. And we know about America's dad, Bill Cosby. Kings, celebrities, sports heroes, these are the people that the paparazzi love and love to destroy. But before I beat down the people who, you know, are found under the spotlight, I'd like to be critical of my own, if I could, pastors and church leaders Today, pastors are more susceptible to the evils of power more now than ever. In a day of TV and blogs, video venues, tweets, posts, books, articles, mega churches, real estate, conferences, and publishing, pastors are powerful people who are gaining notoriety and even some of them are gaining celebrity. They've become these images, really, avatars of themselves, people with power and no confines. J.R. Forstero says that being a pastor is as close as he'll ever get to being a person with king-like power. And I understand what he's saying here. He says that we pastors stand on a platform raised above the congregation, and we tell people God's will for their lives. He says, I'll be lying if I didn't say that that sort of power isn't enticing. After long enough, and people who trust you will quit their jobs because of what you say. They'll decide to get married, to stay married, or they'll decide to leave a marriage. They'll change how they parent their kids. That, he says, is power. And he's right throughout history, from Constantine to the pain off of popes, to the Inquisition and the Crusades, to the Catholic Church scandals, to the stripping of the old of, and the poor of their money in order to buy personal airplanes in the name of evangelism, the most sinister abuses of power have come from the most spiritual people. This is a common story. It's an old story. It's a story that's getting old. And in the end, I'm always left, whether it's 30 for 30 or one of these stories, I'm always left with the question, how can people who are seemingly so talented and so gifted can, on the one hand, do such great things, be so evil on the other hand, commit these crimes, and leave so many delusioned and hurt? These questions, this along with our reading over the last few months, First and Second Samuel, has led me to this conclusion. It is time that we have a discussion. It's time that we talk about power. We need to talk about power, what we do when we get it, how we are to feel about it, and what it does to us. People who are in power are deeply complex they 're multilayered. They can do positive things, but they might lack, but it seems that they lack the conscience or the courage or the character to remain consistent. This speaks to the nature of, of human conquest and security. Humans have to find a way. they, they have a, an inbred need to find a way to consolidate and then secure their power and the scriptures call this building an empire. This was David. He was a man after God's own heart, but David was a man after David's own heart. And many of us, many, many of us in this sanctuary are in positions of power. We lead others. Some of you manage businesses, Some of you have authority in counseling sessions. Some of you have authority and power in classrooms. Some have opportunities in boardrooms or businesses or politics. And 2 Samuel chapter 11 gives us a basis to start the discussion. It's, it's artistic. It's brilliantly dis- constructed. It's emotional. It's tragic. It's gut-wrenching, and it's heartbreaking. But this is what is clear about this, this story. This is not just a story about David. This is a story that is actually about us. And frankly, we are complicit when it comes to the abuses of power. This narrative shows us that we we are capable to do whatever it takes to maintain power, and even if that means lying, stealing, exploitation, plunder, murder, and as Andy Crouch says, maybe even the most common thing, rape. When power is abused, the very fabric of what it means to be human is destroyed. So we look at this story, David is a rags-to-riches story. He's the American dream. David has climbed the ladder to the throne. He's moved around every obstacle. Now he's there. He's established national security. He was praised in the streets as if he was one of the Beatles, and now he's consolidated the kingdom, built a new capital, and like War Acres, Oklahoma, it's a city on the hill. (laughs) He's brought the Ark of the Covenant to secure... This whole thing, and we see on his mind, he's interested in building an empire. He does all of this to build his empire, and the problem emerges from the very few, first lines of the story. It, it, it's a problem that anthropologist Gert Hofstede calls the he calls it the power distance. So in the introductory line, I want to show you, this is the introductory line of the narrative. When the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army while he remained in Jerusalem. This is the main issue. Andy Crouch says that among the many dark gifts of power is distance. Distance from accountability, distance from consequences, distance from the pain we cause others, distance from self-knowledge, distance from friendship, distance from the truth, the palace rooftop, the back entrance, the executive bathroom, the private jet, the accommodations that hide us from other sites. It's what Andrew, President Andrew Jackson called his kitchen cabinet. It's what, it's what Pastor Theologian C.S. Lewis called the inner ring. Combine accommodations built to hide from other sight with unlimited power, and David is a bomb ready to go off. He sees a woman, and he wants her. And, And why wouldn't he? I mean, the pattern of behavior has already taken root. It's just another move to build his empire. He's taken everything that he's wanted before, a piece of land, booty after a, after a battle. Sometimes it came in this name of God. Sometimes it came in the name of justice. Sometimes he did it just because he could. And, and now we're entering in a gray area, and things are about ready to get a little sketchy. Now, I've heard some who, trying to reconcile David's character, say that when he saw Bathsheba, he, what he did was he fell in love with her. And they say, it was wrong, but, my friends, that's just a justification. It's a way to let David off the hook, and when we say that, it might be a way to let ourselves off the hook as well, because this is not the story the writer is telling Making excuses and not telling the truth is just a way to create distance. No, that's not what's happening. He didn't fall in love with her. The writer is showing us that David believes that he has dominant authority, and he'll claim property and people as his own whenever his heart desires, and he wants her. Her. And the truth of the whole thing is revealed in a word. It's a verb. We said it a bunch of times. It's the word sent. Notice this word sent is used throughout the whole text. To create distance. David sent Joab. He believed he could manage his armies from afar. That was dominant control. And while he was where he should not have been, there's the distance thing, David sent someone to go find out about the beautiful woman he wanted, dominant control. David sent his men to go get her, dominant control. And then the worst thing of all, the thing that should break our hearts, David sent her home, shamed humiliated, guilt-ridden and disgraced, dominant, evil control. It was lust of the worst kind, conquest of the most heinous sword. It was was objectification, menacing. Here was the warrior king who had killed thousands with his bare hands, now using those hands to force a woman to do what she did not want to do. This is as disgusting as it gets. He raped that girl. The shepherd king sent to protect the vulnerable instead in order to maintain his power uses it at the risk of tearing apart an entire nation. She barely has a name. Somebody asks, isn't her name Bathsheba? Uh, her identity, though, is really revealed in the relation that she has to the men in her life, her husband and her and her father. And now she's just David's. Too often. Tragically, this is where the story ends. In some people's story, this is where it ends. The story ends with a hashtag, me too it ends with a report that goes uninvestigated by authorities or worse the shame forces a victim to carry this all alone but for us the story continues though because within a moment at least in second samuel chapter 11 power shifts And for once, David isn't in control, and the readers can see it even if he can't. The story turns, and and everything begins to unravel in these words. The woman conceived, and this time she sent word to David, I am pregnant. You know, things can change with only a word, an email, a tweet, an accusation, A recording, innocence, gone in a moment. And we, as the readers, can anticipate the way this story is going to go. We've heard this before. We've heard this kind of story time and time and time again. But for some reason, either it was out of pride or ignorance, David cannot anticipate it. And that is what is painful. David has no remorse. There is no repentance. There is not a confession. And in this story that has gotten so old, all there are are lies, behind-the-scenes conversations, secret notes and letters being passed, strategies, recording, the protection of lawyers, the taking advantage of the system, standing behind the statutes of limitations, no longer does this story be, is this story about national security or the protection of a people or justice for victims. It's about creating more distance. It's about creating more se- secrecy. And ironically, even though the people in charge attempt to keep a lid on the whole thing, the message is absolutely loud and clear. This is now, the whole thing is about now David maintaining his authority. And the verb, is exposed again. It becomes evident again, the, the word sent. And there is this flurry of activity. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent him to David. After the meeting with Uriah, making friends and, giving, and participating in small talk, David sent him to go home and wash his feet, an ancient code word for go have sex with your wife. And he's trying to do this because he's hoping that nine months later, everyone will think that this. Is Uriah's kid. He's attempting dominant control. And then he even follows it up by sending a bribe, attempting again and again and again. You know what is interesting to me? There's one that's not mentioned in this whole text. It's the Bible, after all, and God is not mentioned. This is the lectionary text. I did not, I did not make this up for us this Sunday. People have been reading this text all over the world. Christian people have. And it's interesting to me that God is not mentioned here. Creator God, God who rules over the floods, the rescuer of the Hebrew slaves, the provider of manna, the commander of the angel armies, God is not mentioned And up until this point in the biblical story, the whole thing has been about God who has the ultimate authority, but the whole thing is about this God who has ultimate authority using that authority not to dominate, but to use his creative power, and it has been and it always will be for flourishing. This God has been one who has wanted to make life better God's ultimate authority all the way through the scriptures wasn't like the other gods who dominated, but Yahweh, God's power, was a power that was restrained in order to call persons into being. God's power is to help people, you and me, to be the very best versions of ourselves to make space for us and welcome us in. This is what his power was used for. And the one with ultimate, the ultimate authority and the ultimate power is not named in this text, at least explicitly. But read between the lines because implicitly God, God is seen here. And he's seen in Uriah. Uriah the Hittite, codename for Uriah the foreigner. Unlike David, Uriah yielded his power as an act of power. He understood and lived the Torah of God better than, than David did. He honored his comrades in arms by standing in solidarity with them. He gave up his power. But more than that, he honored his king, the one who wanted to destroy him, by sleeping among the king's servants. Uriah stewarded his power, power given to him by the king for the sake of the other. But David is still confused and blind by what he is doing. And the author has just a brilliant play on words here. It's just marvelous. Out of the mouth of David in the narrative comes the line to Uriah, Haven't you, Uriah, come from a distance? David can't see the irony. And that's what securing and holding, and holding on to power does to us. It, it blinds us. Uriah is the picture of closing the distance. Uriah is the picture of being vulnerable, available, accountable. This is what Almighty God does. David is the picture of widening the distance. Uriah is the foreigner who is the example of God and the way God intends power to be used. And right here, For those of you who are tired, it's right here. I'll just give you the cheat right now. It's right here where it is. You and I are given a choice to open our eyes and realize when we are culpable of power abuse, many, many, many of us have been gifted with positions of power. We lead others and we're confronted with choices and convictions about the power that we have been afforded. Some of us have ignored this. But after reading this text, we don't have the luxury of doing that today. The irony in this tragic story is lost on David. He hadn't clued in. He's been on TV trying to convince others, and maybe even himself, I'm not a crook. So he wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it. And Uriah, the one who has acted as God, Carries in his hand his own death sentence, the ultimate expression of evil authority. And it says, Put Uriah where the fighting is the fiercest, and then you pull back on him. And then, the dramatic and heartbreaking reality is realized. Later, Joab sent word to the king Uriah, the Hittite, is dead. And David thought he could wash his hands of this whole thing, and, and today, this is where our text ends. But the good news is this, is, this is not where the story ends. Years later, there was another person in a position of authority that tried to maintain this position in the empire, and his name was Pilate and in the name of peace he washed his hands of the responsibility of the name of the death of a man whose name was Jesus of Nazareth and like Uriah the implicit image of who who was the implicit image of God in 2nd Samuel uh, early christians proclaimed that Jesus of Nazareth was not the implicit revelation of God he was the explicit revelation of God some said that he was of the line of David. His followers called him Kurios, which means Lord, a title that was reserved only for Caesar. He spoke of a new kingdom, and Jesus believed that hoarding power would lead to doom. One day, his disciples were arguing about who would sit on his right and on his left it, when, when Jesus came into his kingdom, and he could seize that power. It created, in fact, a whole argument among all of his followers, but Jesus then lectured them, "'You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you.'" Instead, any of you who wants to become great, you must become the servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus revealed in that moment the prescription for the evil use of power. And he said, It's offered to those who follow me. Close the distance through a vulnerability and accountability, become a servant. He said to his disciples, you think like Pilate. You think that you're saving the empire when really what you're just doing is you're holding up a house of cards. You know how the world works. You know all the power plays. The people build empires like it's children playing king of the hill. But he gives these great words, but that's not how you do it. That is not how it is among you. What fabulous words. Jesus is the one who is poured out, the powerfully vulnerable, the one who is available and open. He's closed the distance. And you know what else? Because of this, he has has the power, the very power to rewrite our script and to change our story. And he does this by way of the cross. It is the most explicit example of power surrendered. Jesus insisted the power was a gift, and grounded in his nature, he offers it to his disciples not to be hoarded, but to be stewarded for the betterment of the world. And the way, we've said this every single week, the way in which God reveals his power is seen in the bloody, shamed, crucified, and then resurrected and glorified Christ. He is the Messiah, they called him, the anointed one, the one true king. And this, my friends, is the story that we remember every single time we come to the Lord's table. He is the king that has come to establish the new royal line of hope. He has come to set things right. We do not have to live in the way in which we've been living before. He has the power in order to help us do it. The judges couldn't do it. Saul couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. None of his sons could do it. We can't do it. But what we are not able to do, Jesus of Nazareth has the power to do, and he gives us that power. I want to remind you this, that as the king, his crown, was away, his crown was thorns. His cross was murder. His royal sign was one of mockery, and it was nailed above his head. His subjects were the ones who shamed him. And Jesus said about them, demonstrating his power, Father, they have no sense about what they're doing. Forgive them. When we come to this table, it's called communion. It is a means of grace. It means that we take into our bodies the bread and the wine. It means that here at this table, our script is being rewritten. It's an invitation to yield our plans and our power to God, to stop dealing with God as if God was an object and the people around us were an object, whereby we could take from them whenever we wanted and establish the empire that we long for. Instead, it is to participate in His kingdom, to yield to His power, and to be invited on a new path. So we come as a confession. We confess when we come to this table that there have been times when we have misused power. But we come to this table also recognizing that what happens at this table is that God's power is being made new in us. So my friends, at dinner, I want to remind you that at dinner, on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those, he came to save. He took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. An example of sacrifice. Whenever you eat it, Please remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he held up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant, the new way of living that comes in my blood. And whenever you drink of this, do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Anyone who places their trust in this God who is longing for this new way of life is invited to this table. We want to let you know that we, have, we don't want any barriers. Anybody who is open to this new way of life is welcome to come. So, uh, because we don't want any barriers, I want to let you know that our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic, and I want to invite you to come. When you come, I want you to leave your aisle there on the left side, and I want you to come down the aisle with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. At our church, we do not take communion, we receive it because we know that we are being given a gift. So approach one of these servers, listen to what they have to say dip the bread into the cup then and be thankful. If for any reason you cannot come down our aisle, just wave to Justin and he will come and bring the elements to you. He will come and serve you. Friends, this is something new for us. And so I want to invite you to come.